0: Hey everyone, this is Kristen from theheadofthebed.com and today we have a special treat for everyone. We have Dr. Mark Kosick here with us today and he's going to be talking about EKG lead selection for intraoperative monitoring. Well, thank you, Kristen. And I'm currently employed as a professor at Western Carolina University. My prior academic appointments included the University of Kansas, University of Alabama at Birmingham, and the University of Maryland. My area of expertise is electrocardiography I've lectured extensively across the country during the past 20 years, teaching anesthesiologists, hospitalists, CRNAs, and critical care nurses on various EKG topics. I've also written a textbook and handbook on EKGs and authored chapters on related topics in anesthesia textbooks. Lastly, and very important, I continue to maintain an active clinical practice as a CRNA. Given the time constraints of today's podcast, uh, I've decided to focus on helping anesthesia providers to select the best EKG leads for perioperative monitoring. And so I would probably begin by asking, what is the significance of this topic for anesthesia providers? And it really relates to two primary areas. The first one being, if you consider the standards of care for whether it's nurse anesthetists or anesthesiologists. And that states that without exception, all anesthetics require monitoring the EKG, just one of the standards of care. A second is if you look at the demographic data of the current surgical population, uh, we certainly are now anesthetizing a greater proportion of patients with significant comorbidities. So it's not surprising when you look at our standards of care that they're consistent with the change the demographics of our surgical population. And that would even include patients who are same-day surgical procedures. So let me begin in two primary areas I thought that might get us started here. And that is foundational to selecting the best EKG leads. Uh, Involves two topics I selected. The first is correct EKG placement. And the second is preoperative anesthetic assessment. So as I said, these are cardinal for us, really knowing how to select what leads for any respective patient. So to begin with, for the correct EKG lead placement, the literature is very clear here in terms of demonstrating uh, healthcare providers who routinely monitor the EKG. So that would include anesthesia providers, obviously, intensive care unit nurses, have trouble with two primary areas something as basic as correct EKG electrode placement, and the second being correct EKG lead configuration. And although this is an older study I'd like to reference, and that appeared in Heart and Lung in 91, the author being Dr. Drew, who is an outstanding and has expertise in electrocardiography nurse researcher, she found uh, that of 138 nurses who were members of the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, 87% demonstrated incorrect technique in setting up their two leads of choice. And these were monitors that had five lead wire cables. And 93% of those having done so by misplacing their EKG electrodes. And again, I want to emphasize this is not unique to critical care nurses. I know in being an anesthesia provider for over 30 years, uh, it is a common problem for anesthesiologists, nurse anesthetists, in terms of not being attentive to the significance of correct EKG electrode placement. So in that context, when you think about electrode placement, you can contrast the standard 12-lead EKG in contrast to what anesthesia providers do. And that is we use what's called the mason liker lead configuration. And this makes a lot of sense because we have extraneous movements sometimes in the operating room with extremity surgeons moving things. Same with for the ICU patients or in PACU. So basically, this configuration places the distal extremity electrodes on the torso. So, this has been validated in the literature, and that would include, for example, uh, placing the right arm electrode in close proximity to the right shoulder, instead of literally out by the wrist or out by the upper arm, just to cite an example. And again, the whole idea being to minimize artifact that can occur otherwise. But I do wanna emphasize that when we do use this configuration, which again is completely appropriate, it is not considered equivalent to the standard 12 lead EKG. So let's talk about then where exactly electrodes should be properly placed, ideally placed. So let's begin. For the right arm electrode, it should be placed out, which is by color coding, by convention, the white electrode. It's placed out by the right shoulder. Uh, that again helps to stabilize the ECG tracing. Uh, the left arm electrode similarly is placed up by the left shoulder, which is the black electrode and by convention the left leg electrode is the red electrode and that's placed as close as possible near the iliac crest the crest of the iliac crest so the basic message there is you really want to have your electrodes placed in a more lateral position on the torso and over bony prominences not in a more medial location the closer you move electrodes to a more medial location the further away they are in regards to trying to replicate a respective lead that you would see on a 12-lead EKG. So that can be problematic in terms of interpretation of the EKG data. Lastly, in terms of electrode placement, consider the right leg electrode. It is labeled right leg, and many people do, as anesthesia providers, place it down by the right leg. Actually, it can be placed anywhere. And for myself, since I live at the head of the table most of the time, it's up by the right shoulder near my right arm electrode. Clearly, if the electrode were to get wet or it became disconnected, otherwise, if it was down by the right leg, I'd have to move my arm down there. It could disrupt surgery, upset a surgeon. So it makes much more sense to place it up by the right shoulder. Let's talk now about the proper electrode placement for the six chest electrodes. What's important here is the use of bony landmarks. So for example, for V1, if you were going to monitor intraoperatively in a true V1 lead, you would place with a five cable system, the brown electrode, fourth intercostal space right of the sternum. Now, remember, the first bony structure that you you typically palpate is the clavicle. So the depression directly beneath that is not where you begin counting. That is not your first intercostal space. V2, if you placed a brown electrode, fourth intercostal space left of the sternum, that would be V2. We'll skip V3 for a moment and go to V4. That is midclavicular, fifth intercostal space. V3, if you were to monitor in that interop, which actually would be an outstanding lead to use for patients at risk for CAD, it is placed equal distance between V2 and V4. V5 is horizontal to V4 anteraxillary line, so it is not placed in the fifth intercostal space anteraxillary line. It is literally horizontal to V4 anteraxillary line. If the patient's anatomy happens to have it placed in the fifth intercostal space, then of course that's fine, but you do not palpate the fifth and slide upward to the anterior axillary line. V6, the last of the conventional 12-lead EKG of the six electrodes for the precordium, is placed horizontal to V5 mid-axillary line. So again, for emphasis, critical for placement of these is palpation of bony landmarks. There actually are, which can be used by anesthesia providers, an additional three chest electrodes that are posterior ones. And that would include V7, V8, and V9. So sometimes if I have a patient in a prone position, I would consider these versus an, one of the anterior ones where a patient for a long procedure would be laying on that electrode. So V7 would be placed simply continue along that horizontal line from V6 at the posterior axillary line. V8, continue with a horizontal line, now on the backside, below the scapula. That would be the location for V8. And V9, the last one, would be continue along a horizontal line adjacent to the vertebral column, and that would be V9. V7, V8, and V9, are considered what's called true posterior leads. Now, having just reviewed those electrodes, I want to emphasize again the the significance of using bony landmarks. And the reason I say that is the literature has demonstrated as little as a two centimeter misplacement of a chest lead can lead to diagnostic errors, both in terms of false positives and false negatives. So you can see it's extremely important to make sure pre electrodes are properly placed. Improper electrode placement also, like a more medial location for the limb lead electrodes, let's say, for example, if you place the right arm midclavicular, can also lead to erroneous interpretation. So again, you may even see, for example, flipped T-waves by making that slight of movement. Not meaning you would, but you could. I personally have seen it clinically in teaching electrocardi- electrocardiography interop. So placement is critical. And really far too many anesthesia providers have noticed because we are so sensitive to the need to push the schedule, continue with time, Sometimes just simply accept, for example, what a pre-op nurse may place the electrodes and they can be completely inappropriate. Or they personally place them the anesthesia provider just for the sake of time and just slap them on anywhere and think, if I got a pattern, everything is fine. Well, when it comes to actually accurately interpreting EKG data, no, it can lead to iatrogenic injury for that respective patient. A unique patient population may be as well a woman with large breasts. The American College of Cardiology recommends in that situation to place chest electrodes under the breast in such patients. So again, I wanna emphasize, no EKG lead system is reliable without a tendinist to correct EKG electrode placement. And we're talking on literally a few seconds to do this correctly. So the second point I wanted to discuss in terms of foundational to selecting the best EKG leads are preoperative anesthetic assessment. Now you may be asking, how does that come into play? Well, the pre-anesthetic assessment helps us to identify, obviously, if a patient has risk factors for perioperative cardiac morbidity, also known as PCM. That would be, for example, diabetes, geriatric patients, family history of CAD, etc. And so with that in mind, that helps me to determine what EKG lead might be best for this respective patient based upon the pre-op history. In addition, not just lead selection, but in terms of trying to accurately interpret what changes I see. Because anyone, in any setting, trying to interpret EKG data without patient history, medical history, surgical history, family history, is at a tremendous disadvantage. Because you certainly can have what appears to be significant changes. Let's say, for example, if you had evidence of transmural injury in v3 and st segment elevation of three millimeters that may in fact not actually be transmural injury it could be a false positive in fact could be correlated with a healthy young male for example so i always emphasize that people look at ekg changes not in terms of absolute values trends are important but also in terms of the full clinical picture are there any hemodynamic derangements associated with that? It's a tachycardia, a hypertension, gross hypotension, et cetera, et cetera. Certainly, we can have significant EKG changes in the absence of any hemodynamic derangements. That certainly is possible as well. Similarly, in terms of preoperative assessment, if you're picking a patient up in the ICU, it's important to get cardinal information from that critical care nurse. For example, what leads are you using up here? What have you found to be most valuable to discern, to detect significant ST segment changes? Because that can be very unique to a specific patient. Or you may ask the nurse, does this patient have any frequent aberrantly conducted beats versus those that are ventricular in origin? Because that could provide some guidance for you in terms of what you're using in the operating room as well. So again, remember, EKG criteria in the literature for suggesting whether it's myocardial ischemia, myocardial injury, is that criteria is with the understanding that EKG electrodes are properly placed and that the EKGs leads were properly configured. So there are many ways that healthcare providers providers can mismanage and misconfigure and misplace electrodes and potentially cause atrogenic injury. And I want to say an excellent resource for people listening, uh, and this is an article that was published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology in 2007. And this, uh, as I said, is an excellent resource for recommendations for standardization and interpretation of the EKG. It actually is a scientific statement from the American Heart Association Electrocardiography and Arrhythmias Committee, as well as the Council on Clinical Cardiology and the American College of Cardiology Foundation. So that is an excellent resource for anyone. Now let's talk now about what leads you're going to use in the operating room. You've interviewed a patient pre-op and you say, okay, what do I want to use? Obviously, you have many options here. Let's start with a very commonly used lead among anesthesia providers, and that is Lim Lead 2 you have to ask, why is lim lead 2 so common? I think many people, if you will, for lack of a better word, that has been their experience traditionally through an ICU, whether it's on the physician side, the nurse's side. Lead 2 because of its MQRS, I saying, MQRS lead axis, provides excellent P wave morphology, large R waves, and that's what people get accustomed to seeing. And it's like, anything else I really don't want to look at that might be associated with a small R or a big S because it just looks too foreign. Well, actually, uh, lead two is not a lead that is best for all patients by any stretch of the imagination. So really, you should view it in this context. Lead two is a very good lead to use, an excellent lead to use if you have a patient whereby it's important for you to make dysrhythmia analysis in the context of where P waves are important for the diagnosis. So that would include, for example, is this atrial fib? Is it atrial flutter? Is it a junctional rhythm? So those type of rhythm disturbances where P waves are important for the diagnosis lead to, by and large, is your first choice. Let's move on now in terms of some chest leads and reasons for selecting those. And that would include in terms of patients at risk for ischemia, injury, or MI. So what leads are best here? Well, let's first look in the context of a five-cable EKG system versus a three-cable EKG system. Remember, if you have a five-cable EKG system, right arm, left arm, left leg, excuse me, right leg, and a chest lead, when all of those are properly connected, you have the capacity to monitor at any time during that case in any of the six limb leads, leads one, two, three, AVR, AVL, AVF, in addition to one chest lead. And when I say one chest lead, what I'm really saying here is a true chest lead, meaning as good as what you saw on the preoperative 12-lead EKG if there was one. It's a true chest lead. It gives us information, in fact, in what's called the transverse plane, as you would see on a preoperative 12-lead EKG. So that is an excellent system to use if you have it as an option and you look at the many opportunities you have in terms of the globally look at myocardial performance. So I mentioned in terms of a three-cable system versus a five-cable system. If you have a three-cable system, and sometimes I'm challenged with that clinically, there's not a five-cable available at a hospital, but I feel there's a need for this patient to monitor any chest lead, then you can configure what's called a modified chest lead. So basically, it's a modification of a true chest lead. And let me say up front, a modified chest lead should never be used in place of a true chest lead when a true chest lead is an option. Anytime you're trying to modify something to trying to replicate a true, the modification is not as good in terms of sensitivity and specificity issues. And that has been substantiated in the literature as well. So a, an example of a modified chest lead would be an MCL-5. And there are several variations in the literature of that that can be used by anesthesia providers. The the common denominator among any modified chest lead is because basically a modified chest lead involves the use of two designated electrodes, where one is designated as negative and one is designated as positive. So anytime you're using a modified chest lead, what it means is one of the electrodes is placed in that respective chest lead position. So if we were to construct, for example, a CS5, central subclavicular 5, you have one electrode that must be in the V5 position. Otherwise, you cannot have a modified chest lead 5. And the one that's placed there, you've got to make sure it becomes positive. And the negative electrode for a CS5, which stands for central subclavicular 5, is placed out by the right shoulder. And so if you were to place the left arm electrode in the V5 position, place the right arm electrode in its usual location, and you were to dial in on the EKG monitor a lead one, that would still be displayed on the screen as a lead one, but it literally is not because you moved the left arm to the V5 position. That would actually be an example of a CS5, central subclavicular five. So if I didn't have a five cable system, that would be a nice alternative to still monitor for that patient in terms of sensitivity for myocardial ischemia or injury. Where has V5 come into play in terms of being acknowledged as that is an excellent lead to use uh, for intraoperative monitoring for ST segment changes, T wave changes? It dates back to the mid 60s. Blackburn et al. demonstrated in their research about 89% of significant ST segment changes was found on a stress EKG test in V5. So hence, this must be a pretty sensitive lead. Now, I went ahead and went back and read that research and their methodology, and there certainly were some limitations to it, given that that was in the mid-60s. Nevertheless, it doesn't mean it invalidates their research. Now, as a follow-up to the research, London and Hollenberg, classical research done in electrocardiography in 1988 uh, published in Anesthesiology did a study titled intraoperative myocardial ischemia localization by continuous 12 lead. The briefly, the methodology of the study, they had a little over hundred patients and they were with known as well as suspected coronary artery disease. They were going to surgery for non-cardiac surgery via a general anesthetic. So that was good external validity to the research because most patients going to the operating are not having cardiac surgery and most are not having regional, they're having general. So that's good external validity. And what they basically found was the sensitivity like the prior research, in fact, was greater sensitivity for the V5. Followed by limb lead 2 in terms of for a limb lead. The median duration was they determined... Uh, through their analysis was about 10 minutes. So clearly, any of us can miss significant changes that are transient if we're not watching. And we do much more than watching EKG interop, so that is possible for anyone. One of the significant problems with their methodology, which they acknowledged, which was important that they did, they unfortunately incorporated patients with suspected CAD. That is a hit on the internal validity of their research because you have to look at it in this context they're saying, look at these EKG changes. These are significant. Wow, that's impressive. And it happened in these leads. So these leads are most sensitive. Of course, what's the underlying assumption? Those are true changes. And anytime you have a patient with suspected CAD, they, of course, could have been false positives. Now, what would have helped then, obviously, if they've just included patients with documented CAD, but they didn't. And what would have helped if they would have teased out there were certain, say, here's our end number with documented. Here's our end number with suspected. And let's run the Let's run the data, uh, the statistics on that, but they did not. So we'll never know. So it's just a limitation of the research. It does not mean people should not be using a V5. I want to be clear in that. But it's important to always, in any research that you're critiquing, to understand the limitations, which helps offer an explanation for some differences in research outcome. In fact, two years later, a uh, group of researchers, Mizutani and all, in 1990, reported in the American Journal of Cardiology, ST monitoring 12-lead during and after coronary angioplasty. So there's some similarities here in terms of research and what they're trying to determine in terms of which leads are most sensitive. Their end number was 97. So quite similar to what we had with the prior study with London and Holmberg. And what did they find? Uh, well, before I get to that, I may want to make one other comment. Of those 97 patients, they were all with documented CAD. There was no suspected. So upfront, there's stronger internal validity with their research. They also established, which is not which is their studies, but others have as well, use of a single lead is completely inadequate. So I would encourage anyone who's an anesthesia provider, because this is well documented in the literature, if you are monitoring in patients at risk for CAD in a single lead, and you have poor outcome, and yet you have the capacity to monitor multiple leads. First of all, that's a patient safety issue. And second of all, it's a potential medical legal issue. You are vulnerable in terms of knowing what the literature says, that multiple leads are superior to a single lead. And even if someone were to say, well, all I have is the capacity to display one lead at a time. Therefore, that's all I did. Well, think about it there are lead selector switches on the vast majority of monitors today. So there's nothing that prohibits anyone from intermittently going up and changing a lead selector switch to see what's going on in other leads. Clearly, use of a single lead is inadequate because myocardial ischemia injury can be very regionalized. So if you're not looking the right leads, you can completely miss significant events. So what Mizutani and all found was two appropriate leads increase sensitivity 93 percent now I want to emphasize not just any leads to appropriate leads so it comes down to again correct lead selection which again when you look at our standards of care and we're looking at EKG monitoring the understanding is that we are have the capacity to have these cardinal skill sets to understand that we're not just connecting a patient up to a monitor and basically not the understanding of how to correctly interpret that data. This is an underpinning for that. So appropriate leads can improve sensitivity, which is why, again, it's vital for two reasons, patient safety and continuity of care to always document what leads are being used on the patient. Nothing could be more potentially harmful for a patient. Then they have a second procedure, and they had a significant morbidity from the first. And let's say, for example, someone gave beta blockers, maybe combined with some nitroglycerin, and they documented ST changes that were significant, but failed to document the leads in which that occurred. That ties the hands of the subsequent anesthesia provider. It obviously would be great to know, for continuity of care, patient safety, what leads, in fact, that was demonstrated in. So for misotoninol, the most sensitive lead for ST elevation was V3. For limb leads, it was not two, it was limb lead three. For ST depression, it was also V3. For the limb lead also, it was limb lead three. So again, it shows here's a different group of researchers, stronger internal validity. However, it is a different external validity issue here. There's no doubt about that, but it shows a difference here. And that leads us to the most recent, which dates back to 2002, over a decade now, in terms of the anesthesia literature, in terms of trying to determine which leads are best for detecting ST changes, T wave changes, et cetera. And that was Landsberg et al. reporting the anesthesiology in 2002. Now, in comparing this with London and Homburg's work, we're looking here at about 185 consecutive patients undergoing vascular surgery. They were monitored continuously with 12 lead for ST trend analysis, so perioperatively, as well as 48 to 72 hours after surgery. So you wanna think about the external validity here of their research funding. It's applicable for to us as anesthesia providers when we drop our patients off in PACU or the ICU. So it's important that we convey to those healthcare providers what leads we would like to see continued monitoring those respective patients. They also, like Mizutani, documented use of a single lead is completely inadequate. So again, another evidence-based representation of multiple leads are important. And they also said two or more appropriate leads, chest leads, improve sensitivity to up to 97%. ST depression was seen in about 97% of all patients in this study. And of the leads they found as Ms. Itani did, V3, not V5, V3 detected ischemia the earliest, followed by, not V4, excuse me, not V5, but V4, then V5. So again, this is consistent with some other research that was done outside of anesthesia. What did they find also? They teased out the literature in terms of their data a little more detail, which I thought was great. With patients sustaining an MI, V3 was no longer the most sensitive. It was V4. V4 was the most sensitive. And and in that patient population, V3 and V5 were equally sensitive. So again, if you're looking at anesthetizing a patient who clearly is in the process of having an MI, from a statistical perspective, V3. V4 would be your first choice. If you're talking for monitoring a patient who's at risk for ischemia or injury, as well as an MI, V3 is the preferred lead, followed by V4 and then V5. This information you can find, what I've just shared with you in terms of this research being evidence-based, it's in major anesthesia textbooks. For example, I've written the CV monitoring chapter for Nagelhot's Nurse Anesthesia since its inception, uh, 2005 through now 2010, if you take a look at those chapters, I have this reported on the, the brief electrocardiography section in terms of the importance of these leads. Similarly, the other major anesthesia textbook used nationally as well is Miller's Anesthesia. You look back at 2005, as well as the current edition in 2015 that just came out, that eighth edition, also list for people who are learning, training in the respective agencies, anesthesia, the preferred leads, as I just stated, as relates to Landsberg et al., as well as other researchers. Having said that, when you look in the context, what I find clinically when I continue to practice in different areas across the country I find very commonly, as I lecture across the country, I hear from my peers in the audience, and this doesn't matter whether it's nurse anesthetists, anesthesiologists, uh, AAs, what I happen to hear is, we use, and we have our default settings as LIMLI-2 and V5. So what that tells me is they're not current with the existing literature. So I want to emphasize again, the EKG leads preferred for monitoring for perioperative ischemia for ST depression which could represent subendocardial injury, or ST segment elevation, which would reflect transmural injury, are V3 first, fall by V4, and thirdly, V5. For the limb leads, limb lead three is the preferred lead. My second choice for limb leads, if three is not an option, is AVF, Fall by limb lead two. And again, that's based upon the literature. Now, having shared this information and reviewed this with you, let's not forget not just to rely upon data in the context of statistical significance. Let's get back to some clinical reality. If I have a patient who has a preoperative 12 kg, and in my initial assessment of that, I find, for example, they have, we'll just say theoretically, in one, an AVL, Impressive ST elevation with T-wave inversion. Uh, Interop by two preferred leads are not going to be V3 and limb Lead 3. That would be like turning my back on the leads that are showing significant changes for that patient. It's almost as if I'm saying, I don't want to deal with that, so let's go to some leads that look good. No. So in essence, what everyone should do is what's called fingerprinting. Allow the baseline, if there is one. 12 lead EKG to guide you first. If that is non-directive, then clearly you go with the statistics. And then still, even with the statistics, because many of us have the option, look at multiple leads interop as time permits. In fact, many monitors today give you the option to do what's called a multi-lead ECG. So before induction, it just takes a few seconds. I have a five cable system. I'll display all six limb leads and my selected V-lead. And I can make a global assessment before I'm about to do an insult for that patient, whether it's propofol, my volatile agent, et cetera. So I have a baseline. And just remember, some reality when you look at the literature is it takes about 17 years for research to be implemented in practice. So uh, I understand it can take some time. But nonetheless, I know we're all trying to improve our practice from an evidence-based perspective.